people have annually celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ. Today we call this celebration Christmas, but historically God's people have made this a four week celebration called Advent, which means arrival. During the first four weeks of December, anticipation builds for Christmas Day, which remembers the centuries during which anticipation built for the first Christmas Day. Our tradition here is that the first four Sundays of December are devoted to celebrating Advent using the themes of hope, love, joy, and peace, and then culminating with a Christmas Eve service. So in addition to all of your Christmas Day traditions, we hope that you will celebrate with us all month long. Don't forget, I know David mentioned this, to help with that, we've put together a resource called The King Has Come, which includes devotions and daily readings and songs and stories and resources. They're only a couple bucks, so if you haven't grabbed one already, make sure and grab one on your way out. This morning, our Advent theme is love, and our text is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you look at the beginning of your New Testament, you'll find four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by four men, inspired and carried along by God to tell the story of Jesus. Matthew, when it comes to his telling of the Christmas story, is very selective. He never contradicts anything the other authors say, but he excludes many of their details and he includes many details that they don't mention. For example, as we'll see today, Matthew is the only author who tells the Christmas story through the perspective of Joseph. So our plan this morning, Lord willing, is to work through the text and then think together about the advent of love through the advent of Jesus. Here's a working definition of love to keep in mind as we're moving through this sermon. Just a working definition of love as we listen to God's word. Love is costly effort for the good of the beloved. It's doing what is best for someone else. Love is costly effort for the good of the one you love. So keep that in mind. As we read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus Christ, and hear and think about the costly effort made by God for his 
beloved. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads? Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, as we read your word today, as we think about your word today, would you reach our minds and help us to understand? Would you reach our hearts and give us more affection for you? And would you reach our wills and incline us to follow you, to obey you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't already, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have here under the seat in front of you, you'll find Matthew chapter 1 on page 523. As we saw last week, Matthew begins his book with a genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to Abraham. He does that in order to root the Christmas story in history. He doesn't begin with once upon a time. He begins with a genealogy to signal to his first readers and to us that this is not fiction. This is a true story. And he was writing at that time to a very skeptical Jewish audience. Next, Matthew moves on and we'll see today. He goes right into his account of the birth of Jesus. So look with me at verse 18 in Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew's account begins with the conception of a child. She, that's Mary, was found to be with child. But this conception was, to say the least, this was an unusual conception. What are we told? Mary was found to be with child. And what does it say next? From the Holy Spirit. In other words, the child within Mary was not the result of her union with another man. The child within Mary was from the Holy Spirit, which defies All understanding. One of the things that is so important for us to do. Every Christmas. Is to take a step back. And try and listen. All over again. To the Christmas story. And receive the miracle. When we hear things over and over and over and over and over again, you sort of develop an immunity to their significance. So it's good for us to take a step back, slow down, 
and think about what the word of God is actually saying about the birth of Christ. Here is a woman who had never been united to a man. She is pregnant. And the child in her womb is, Matthew says, from the Holy Spirit. We can't understand that. It's beyond our understanding. This was the miraculous conception. Miraculous conceptions are actually common in the Bible. There are a lot of miraculous conceptions in Scripture. Women unable to have children, miraculously enabled to have children. There's so many of them. Think of women like Sarah and Hannah and Elizabeth. But there is never anything like this. Unlike every other miraculous conception in the Bible, this child would have no earthly biological father. This child, unlike all the other miraculous conceptions, this was very unique. This child that Mary carries had no earthly biological father. He was from the Holy Spirit and would be born to a young woman who had never been united to a man. So let that sink in. Here's what J.I. Packer had to say about it. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. It's staggering. So this was the miraculous conception, but this was also an untimely conception. We're told at the beginning of verse 18 that Mary became pregnant while she was betrothed to Joseph, or we might say engaged to Joseph. They were pledged to be married to one another, and betrothal was a period of time devoted to preparation for a wedding and preparation for marriage. However, a betrothal was far more significant than an engagement. Today, if an engaged couple breaks up, there are no legal consequences. But a betrothal in Mary and Joseph's day included a legally binding contract. 
In other words, divorce was the only way out of a betrothal in Mary and Joseph's day. Now that helps us understand the next verse, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph, here we meet Joseph. Joseph finds out that his fiance, the woman to whom he is pledged to be married, is pregnant. And he knows that he is not the father. Think about this. Remember, Matthew alone, we're not just reading the Christmas story, we're reading it through Matthew. Matthew alone records the Christmas story through the perspective of Joseph. So here is Joseph. He is the man who is pledged to marry Mary. He finds out that she is pregnant and he knows this for certain, that he is not the father. Imagine how devastating that would have been for Joseph. Imagine how devastating that would have been for Joseph to learn that the woman he loves, the woman that he is pledged to marry is, before they are married, before they have come together, is pregnant. He loves Mary. He has committed himself to Mary. He has committed his life to Mary. And while they are preparing for a wedding and preparing for marriage, Joseph finds out that she is pregnant with someone else's child. That would be devastating. We're not told how Joseph found out. By this point, Mary had been visited by the angel Gabriel. She knew how she was pregnant and she knew why she was pregnant. She must have passed along the explanation to Joseph, but of course he would not have believed her. Would you? Of course, Joseph would not have believed Mary. I imagine Mary pleading with Joseph. Joseph, I know how this looks, but I have not been unfaithful to you. Joseph has no category in his mind for a pregnant virgin. That's impossible. He has no category in his mind for this. So the only explanation is adultery. The only explanation is that Mary has been unfaithful to Joseph. So we're told Joseph thought about what to do. And then he, in verse 19, resolved to divorce her quietly. And we're told that he resolved to do this because he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. So here's how that worked. Joseph 
could have called Mary out as an adulterer. He could have, if you will, pressed charges. At worst, think about this. At worst, in this society, in this day, at worst, she would have then received the death penalty. She could have received the death penalty under Old Testament law for committing adultery against her husband. At best, here's best case scenario. At best, she would have been publicly ostracized. And she would have been put to shame as an adulterer. But Joseph loved her. And with a broken heart, he settled on a merciful solution. Resolving to divorce her quietly. But then, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And now skip down to verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, let's go back. What just happened? One minute. Joseph is planning to call off the marriage and send Mary and her unborn child away. And the next minute, Joseph is marrying her, caring for her in her pregnancy and adopting her child. So what just happened? Verse 24, he took his wife. That means he married her. Verse 25, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So he cared for her for her entire pregnancy. And then verse 25, after the child was born, Joseph called his name Jesus. That is adoption. That is adoption because back then it was the father's right and privilege and only the father's right and privilege to name the child. He assumes that right. He assumes that responsibility. As Jesus. Adoptive father. So that's quite a turnaround for Joseph. That is a significant. Change of heart. So let's go back. And look with me. And see exactly. What happened between verse 19. Divorce. And verse 24. Marriage and adoption. If Joseph does not change his mind, Mary will be a divorced woman and her child will be fatherless. Think about the implications. 
If Joseph does not change his mind, Mary will be a divorced woman and Jesus will be a fatherless child, which in that day was called an orphan. So what happened? Verse 20. Verse 20 happened. Verse 21 happened. But as he considered these things, behold. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, we know from Luke. We know from Luke's telling of the Christmas story that what the angel tells Joseph here is exactly what the angel told Mary. In Luke chapter one, verse thirty two. And in verse 35, you can fact check that later. In Luke 1, 32 and verse 35, the angel, it was Gabriel there, told Mary the very same thing that this angel tells Joseph here. So the angel had already told Mary and then Mary told Joseph and Joseph did not believe He did not believe Mary and he resolved to divorce her quietly because she was, in his mind, an adulterer. But when an angel of the Lord, verse 20 and 21, but when an angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph the very same words, he believed. So Mary tells him he does not believe. An angel of the Lord tells him he believes. Mary told him this child is from the Holy Spirit and he dismissed it like we all would have as foolishness. Of course we would have. He may have said something like, do you think I'm a fool, Mary? But then an angel of the Lord said the very same words and Joseph accepted it, married her, loved her, and adopted her son as his own child. When Mary said it, unbelief. When God said it, belief. When Mary said it, unbelief. When God said it, belief. When man alone says it, unbelief. When God says it, belief. When God speaks, the unbelievable becomes believable. When God speaks, then the unbelievable becomes believable. 
if you're here today and you are a Christian, you believe unbelievable things. I hope you know that. The things that you believe, you do not believe exclusively because they are rational. Or because they are logical. Or because they made sense to you. The things that you believe, believe it or not, you do not believe because you were finally presented with enough evidence. You believe unbelievable things because God spoke to you like God spoke to Joseph. If you are a Christian, you believe that this is the word of God. And if somebody were asked to ask you, do you believe that this is the word of God? And you were to say yes. And, and they were to ask you, well, why do you believe that it's the God's word? You'd say something like, because it is. That, that's how someone who believes God, who has faith in God, talks. Well, how can you believe that that is God's word. How can you believe that everything in there is true? And you'd say, because it is. Because God wrote it. How do you know? Because he, he did. And you don't feel bad saying that. You don't feel strange saying that. You don't feel guilty saying that. You're okay not having some chart behind you to prove to that person why. You have faith. This is the word of God. And if you believe that this is the word of God, then you believe unbelievable things. Because in case you haven't noticed yet, this book is full of unbelievable things. I like to say this book is full of magic. Some people freak out when they hear the word magic. And by magic, I just mean power through supernatural forces. My understanding is that's what magic is. If that's what magic is, this book is full of that. This is, book is full of power, unexplainable power. From where? Supernatural forces. And if you're a Christian, you believe all of it. Talking donkeys and floating axe heads and giants... And dead people coming back to life. And realities spoken into existence. And dragons and talking serpents. And flying warriors and submissive lightning bolts. And men living in fish. And the pausing of the earth's rotation. And blind people seeing. And deaf people hearing. And lame people walking. And people turning into piles of salt. And rivers turning into blood. And piles of dead birds falling out of the sky. And towns overtaken by frogs. And bushes that burn but don't burn up. And crosswalks made through 
oceans and sticks turned into snakes and bread falling like snowflakes and water flowing from rocks and fire from the sky and superhuman strength and water turned into wine and a man killing a lion with his bare hands and raging storms calmed with words and mind reading and angel assassins and protection from hungry lions and men surviving being thrown into furnaces and God coming to earth as a human baby. I mean, those are unbelievable things. And if you're a Christian, you believe that every single one of those is true. This is why we love the stories that we tell. This is why we love some of the books we read. This is why we love some of the ideas, because we know that underneath them, there are realities that are true. And many say, and you may have once said, just like Joseph would have said foolishness to all of that that I just read. But now you believe. Because when God speaks, the unbelievable becomes believable. God did not come to you in a dream like he did with Joseph, but he spoke to your heart. God, Scripture says, opened the eyes of your heart. He caused you to be born again. He took your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. And when God did that, you responded like Joseph in faith. And you believed unbelievable things. Verse 24 and 25, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. But make no mistake, this obedience of Joseph was costly, which is why the angel told him in verse 20, do not fear. Why would Joseph be afraid? To take Mary as his wife. There was a lot for Joseph to fear. If he took Mary as his wife. The assumption made by everyone. Would be that Joseph and Mary had been immoral. And they would be seen as unclean. In that society. Joseph who we're told was just and righteous. He would lose his reputation among men. He'd have to give that up. If he was going to. Marry Mary and adopt her son. He'd lose his reputation among men. He would lose the approval of others. He would lose the moral high ground. Maybe he would even lose friendships or family members. He would lose respect, honor, and credibility. But out of love for God, he obeyed God. He married Mary. He adopted Jesus. He loved them and devoted himself to them. In conclusion, our Advent themes of hope and joy and love and peace 
you may know these are historical themes that Christians have considered at Christmas time. The idea is this. With the arrival, which is what Advent means, with the arrival of Jesus comes the arrival of hope. With the arrival of Jesus comes the arrival of love. With the arrival of Jesus comes the arrival of joy. With the arrival of Jesus comes the arrival of peace. True hope. True love. True joy. True peace. And remember our working definition of love. Love is costly effort for the good of the beloved. It is doing what is best for the one you love. I would submit in this text that we see love profoundly in the name that Joseph is told to give his child. The name is mentioned twice. It is the name that we all know. It is the name that we as Christians love. It is the name scripture says that is above every other name. And it is the name Jesus. You were in that day in the Greek. It would sound like this. Jesus. God, through the angel, told Joseph, here's the truth. Here's what has happened. Joseph believes. And then God tells Joseph, I want you to name your boy Jesus. Verse 21. She, it's Mary, will be his wife, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For, God said through the angel, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was a Greek name. It was the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. That name in the Hebrew was a combination of two words. Yehovah, the Lord, and Yasha, saves. The name Joshua, the name Jesus, literally meant the Lord saves. It was actually a very popular name in the first century. One historian thinks that every sixth child you met would have been named Jesus in first century Palestine. The Lord saves. It was actually a common name. Parents would name their child Jesus as an expression of hope that God would fulfill his promise and act to save his people like he had done so many times before. So parents naming their child Jesus was a way of saying, he's coming. 
And remember, there had been centuries of silence from God for his people. There had been centuries of waiting, centuries under oppression. So they were calling out, they were crying out for God to come and rescue them again, to be with them through a great leader. They trusted still his promise that he would come. And so you had parents naming their child Jesus, every sixth child Jesus as a way of saying he is coming. But now the name of this child would not be a way of saying he's coming. Naming this child Jesus would be a way of saying he's here. And Joseph and Mary, the first to know. He's here. The one you've been waiting for. The one you've been praying for. The one your grandparents told you about. The one your people have been crying out for since Adam and Eve. He's here. He has been conceived in your womb, Mary. He will soon be born a baby. And he will grow up. And he will save his people. So God tells Joseph, you name him, the Lord saves Jesus came to save us. How? Well, as Christians, we know that Jesus came to save us by his death on a cross. Beyond the manger is a cross. The costly effort, you could say. The cross is the costly effort for the good Of the beloved. Why? Why would God come and save his people? Why would God send his son Jesus Christ. To be born in a lowly manger. To grow up in humility. To suffer. To die. In the place of sinners. So that sinners could be reconciled to God. Why? Because of his great love for us. Because of his great love for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving us through the death and resurrection of your son. God, we are reminded as we celebrate the advent of Christ that if he never came, we would still be dead in our sin. And we would still be crying out and we would still, whether we knew it or not, be far from you. And distant from you. No fellowship with you. No certain future. Zero hope. 
But because of your great love for us, you have sent your son. And through him, you have been merciful to us. And so our hearts this Advent are filled with thankfulness. They are filled with gratitude. And we love you because you have first loved us. And we say this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.